Welcome to Stress-Free IEP. You do not need to do it all alone. With your host, Frances Schefter, Principal of Schefter Law. She streams the show live on Facebook on the last Tuesday of every month at noon Eastern. Get more details and catch prior episodes at www.schefterlaw.com. The Stress-Free IEP video podcast is also posted on YouTube and LinkedIn. And you can listen to episodes through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Now, here's the host of Stress-Free IEP, Francis Schefter. Good afternoon and welcome to the show, everybody. I'm so excited to introduce my next guest on our show, Scott Markin from Ed Redefined. And I'm so excited because this is a little bit different than we usually do. Usually I focus on IEPs, but you're not on IEPs as much. You're more, well, I'll let you you introduce yourself and let us know what you do, Scott. Sure. Uh, Thanks, uh, Francis, for inviting me. So I'm Scott Markin, and I actually specialize in supporting individuals with disabilities with a focus on autism, um, ADHD, mental health issues, and learning differences with post-high school plans. And that may be college, it may be a gap year, it might be a combination. And so I do a lot of work with IEPs um, as part of understanding students um, and helping them understand and their families understand what is available in terms of support in college and what is, is not available and what's the type of process that you go through. Right. And it's interesting that you say that with IEPs, because IEPs is in um, IDEA, which just covers up through some is 21st, some is 22nd birthday. Um, So what do you do if a student has an IEP and they're getting ready to go to college? What can they do to get any of the, the services or supports that they had in high school? Sure. So that's um, a great and a really important question. So the first thing um, is that many people think um, parents, sometimes um, school administrators um, erroneously think that your IEP automatically transfers over to college. Okay, and it does not. Um, And as you had just brought up the IDEA, um, the main law that governs accommodations for students in college is related to the ADA or the American with Disabilities Act. And that is about access to services. So essentially, um, there's a variety of ways that you can get support in college. Most people tend to think of accommodations because if they have an IEP or they have a 504 plan, right, they get accommodations. Um, and that is one main way, but not the only way in college. And essentially, after you are accepted to college and you decide to commit to one school, then you would go reach out to the Accessibility Services Office or Disability Services Office and pursue accommodations and you need to show various documentation, um, have meetings to go ahead and discuss what is, um, I don't love this term, um, but what's the functional limitation of your disabilities on your education. And one of the big differences um, that I think you maybe just heard me say is you need to go do it, okay? Um, And that's very different, right, than what happens in the K through 12 setting. You need to go. Right. And you is the student, not the parents. Right. So that's a really good point. Okay. So sometimes at the beginning, um, you know, parents are certainly involved, okay? Um, However, it's best 
you know, for the student's long-term success, for the student to be as independent as possible in the process. You know, I do help students go ahead and um, understand accommodation, prepare for their accommodations meeting, where they need to go ahead and discuss, you know, what it is that they're seeking and why they're seeking that. Um, and so um, often, I do want to say one more thing while talking about parents. So there's something in college called FERPA. Um, I'm not actually sure what the acronym stands for, but it's essentially um, the educational privacy rights of the student. And another big you know, shock to a lot of uh, families and parents in particular is that parents don't receive information from colleges. They don't receive the grades. They don't receive you know, if there's a notification that you're on academic probation because FERPA protects the student's right to educational privacy. So there's some ability um, to go ahead and have students, if they're willing to, waive their rights uh, regarding FERPA so that parents can get some more information directly on their own beyond what the student um, you know, shares directly. Right, and so it's a student gets everything. I know that's hard for parents because they've been in control so long. Right. And a lot of times parents will say, but I'm paying the bill. Right, so that's <laughs> like a great point, okay? And so I think, and then you have on the opposite, some you know, students who go ahead and say, you know, leave me alone, you know, I'm completely independent now, right? And they maybe had accommodations, they say, I'm not using those anymore, right? Um, and so I do think while it does actually rest with the student, you need, you know, a collaborative way that you work together as um, a family. And, you know, because the parents are the ones that are typically paying, the parents, I like to um, say, I think it's helpful for parents to give parameters to the students, and then, you know, the student needs to take the lead. So the parameter may be, I'm not comfortable with you as a as the student or my child flying all the way, you know, across the country for college and being three hours at an airport, okay? Because um, when you've needed some support, it's needed to be much faster than that. And the student may not like that. I actually see that frequently, you know, but in that regard, the parents are the ones are paying. Um, but then the student really needs to be the one to go ahead and take the lead. And while you're still in high school is a really good time to go ahead and start um, gradually showing more independence. Um, and I, I actually, I'm curious what you think about this, okay? okay. Um, but I actually, so I do a college readiness assessment mm -hmm. um, as part of my work where, you know, I look at the academics, yes, but the two big areas um, that is needed for college uh, success that's um, typically different than high school is your independence, your level of independence and your living um, skills, life skills, as well as your self-advocacy. So I look at where a student is with regards to academics, you know, self-advocacy, independence, and social-emotional, and create a plan for them of what do they need to work on before they go to college and what type of supports um, would be beneficial, whether it's offered by a school or whether it's um, private support that's brought in. And so here's where, where I'd love your um, feedback is I typically will suggest that you fade out the accommodations from your IEP or 504 plan in the second semester of your senior year, because you're not going to go ahead, the ones that you're not going to get in college. Okay. Got it. So something like extended time for tests, you'll, if you have the proper documentation, very common, you'll get that in college. Okay. The big one that um, is very atypical in college that is 
um, a big shock a lot of times to families and you know makes the student um, anxious and that's why they need to work on it earlier is that there's not extra time for assignments so if you're used to you know going ahead and saying oh i didn't finish it's due tomorrow i could 50 percent extra i'll turn it in in you know two days so because that doesn't exist um with every everything i say there's exceptions okay but because it doesn't exist um you know going ahead and fitting that out i think is a good idea in the second semester of yeah I could see where that could be helpful, depending on the child, because, yeah, they're not going to get it in college. And it's kind of like you want to prepare your child to be independent right. and not need it. Um, I don't think there's a problem with that. I mean, I think that's a good idea. And I want to go back to something you said about um, that you do the assessment to see on the independence. I love that. And I think like children, students need to do that in like 10th grade when they're applying for colleges. And the reason I say that is because the transition part of the IEP is right. usually, I mean, it's the worst. It's look at four-year colleges, where from your assessment, the independence goals, that should be on the IEP and the transition part. And the right. school should be helping the child with those goals to be able to do the transition. Right. So it's interesting you say that, okay, because what I see with my work are um, there are some families that are starting um, early, you know, in 10th grade, as you're saying, because um, there will be a lot of changes happening. Um, it's something also to know the skills that you need to go ahead and build in terms of, like, let's just say, um, not IEP specific, but many students um, have a hard time getting up in the morning. Okay, <laughs> most teens do, right? But like your parents waking you up every day or pounding on your door, you know, to go ahead and make sure that you're up. Um, you're not going to get that in college. So um, those are type of skills that, you know, working with a student um, and earlier is important. So I see that, okay, and I think ideally that's what you want. But I also see people who start the process very, very late because they're concerned, um, you know, I'm not sure whether it's the student or it's the parents, the family, all, everyone, whether the student can go to college um, because of some of the the jump up in skills that you need. So they don't know and they they wait. So I've actually um, started with some students. So if there are seniors right now in high school, you can still go ahead and apply to college. And if you've done nothing, you know, I've actually um, worked with students that this is not advised, okay? <laughs> not advised, but, um, but I started, you know, who wanted to go to um, fairly academically competitive schools and had some of the skill set to do that, but they didn't start till Christmas week. And most people think of applications that are due January or um, you know, the beginning of January, sometimes January 15th, and you can apply early for different schools starting in November. Um, but so you still can do it. Your options may be you know, more limited. Um, so there's never really too late but the disclaimer is don't wait as, as you know, check it out. Right. And that's, I mean, part of the reason I was excited to have you on the show is because I think people don't know you exist. That's correct. People, you that's know, people correct. don't know there's somebody that can help me with this process. And as parents, you know, children don't come with, you know, instruction manuals and children change on their parents every single day. And every year it's something different. And so, one of the things I like to do with my law firm is just put it out there saying, look, you don't have to do it all alone. We have people in the community that can support you through this process. 
Right. And so, I mean, I appreciate that. So, you know, my work is, is super specialized. And so um, I work all around the country. I think right now I supporting, I like to say support, not help, um, supporting students in I think 13 states. And you know, that has um, varied, um, but you can, I can support a student and a family for couple of months to understand the process to several years, you know, because I actually, in addition to helping with the application process, I do some work um, around transition for people in college and some non-academic support for students once they're in college, because it's often, um, it's the softer skills that can be very challenging and the type of support that exists in college often um, is focused, you know, on the academics because that's why, why people are there. Um, but just to your point, if people don't know about me, um, almost all referrals word of mouth. And it's really fascinating because it may come from a therapist. You know, I get a call that says, so-and-so therapist in, you know, Monterey, California, you know, suggested I call you. And I don't know who that person actually is, you know? Um, I that happen. Right. Um, I... I from various schools. I have some relationships with schools that are um, private schools that focus on um, learning differences around the country. I do a lot of um, presentations because not everybody can afford the supports, right, that I might provide. And so I really believe in the importance of um, giving back. And it is very confusing for a lot of people. Um, plus, I do want to just say, I'm not sure if I've, I've shared this with you, but I live this as a parent every day as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, you know, I have two children who are in college, one who has some significant disabilities. Um, and then actually, I'm gonna switch gears for one second if this is okay. Sure. It is, so my daughter um, received some accommodations in college and she did not have an IEP in high school, okay? And there's several students that I have that might have a late diagnosis or let's say um, this is a reason why people hire you, Francis, right? They're having challenges with the school system of an agreement of what is needed. So um, I've supported numerous students that had very minimal support, let's say through a 504 plan um, or had nothing. And they're able to get some accommodations in college because they may one, have new, um, new documentation or also um, mental health is a really big a really big reason, and it's the biggest growth of accommodations in um, college. And so the type of documentation you need for mental health challenges is different than if someone is dyslexic or, you know, someone's on the, on the autism spectrum. You must have been reading my mind because my next question was going to be like, do you help children that are that do not have IEPs and do not have 504 plans? So if parents have a child just going to college, can you work with them as well? Yes. So here's what I do as part of that assessment that I said, um, you know, I get to know the student, the family. I speak to people um, who know the student, non-family members to get how the student, you know, um, is in different settings. And I look at what documentation they have, um, whether they have diagnoses, whether they believe those diagnoses or not. And then, you know, while I cannot guarantee any type of accommodations, um, I'll go ahead and I'll say, you know, this is like very likely not sufficient. Um, and if you have none, it's what could you use? And, you know, as I'm sure you know, and I'm, you probably had guests um, guessing related to this or at least spoke 
about neuropsychs, which, you know, which are very expensive um, to do. And um, by the way, colleges do not pay for, they don't have to pay for the testing, unlike um, in high school. So if you want some sort of support, I speak with the family about what does that mean? Let's talk about the type of supports that you could possibly get. And then, you know, what would you need to do in order to go ahead and get documentation for a specific learning difference? Um, sometimes it's actually easier if a student, you know, so many people have co-occurring uh, challenges. So if you have a learning difference and you have a mental health issue, um, for mental health, again, every school is different, disclaimer on the bottom here, but um, if you have um, a mental health issue, usually the documentation is um, some type of an evaluation from a mental health provider within the last six months, while the documentation, um, a psychoeducational evaluation, a neuropsych, um, historically has been like within three years, uh, if you've had it within three years, but um, schools are trying to be, many colleges are trying to be more flexible with that. It depends. Um, so if you don't have some doc, let's just go ahead. I'm going to, maybe this is too detailed for this, but I think it's like important. So say you're somebody who has um, documented um, like learning differences around reading, and you also have significant anxiety. Okay. So an accommodation um, such as extra time, 50% time on exams. So you would probably get that, right, for the learning difference, okay, because you're, you're, you're reading. Um, if you don't have the actual documentation required for the reading diagnosis that's current and, you know, you don't want to pay $5,000, $6,000, I mean, to get the documentation, always helpful, I think, to understand about who you are and how you learn, okay? But um, if you have anxiety and you can show through a you know, mental health professional that you have anxiety, very common also to get um, you know, extended time on tests. So as a result, you might be able to receive the same accommodation with different type of documentation. So that's what I would counsel a family on um, as part of it. And it's so, so again, um, this, well, this I say all the time, like when do you need to talk to an attorney about the IEP process? And I always say the earlier, the better. Why? The same for you, the earlier, the better, because you can help set the stage that the child has everything they need. So they start college with the accommodations where if parents wait until the child's gotten in and then contact you, it might be a few months until they get all of the documentation and your child's already gone through a semester before they get the accommodations. Right. Um, so that's definitely true. Right. And, you know, I um, am addressing that right now. Okay. Uh, families thinking about, do they want accommodation? Do the children want, they want the children to have accommodations. Um, I'm going to say there's a big caveat, just going back to what we said before about the student's independence, because they could all be put in place and you do all the stuff that you said, you know, in order to go ahead and um, have it early and make sure it's in place before you start in day one. But the student has to be the one who wants to use it um, and access those accommodations. And so, you know, there's, I'm sure you see with your work too, there's students um, and you work really hard uh, for clients, you get them accommodations and then they don't want to use them, right? Um, it's much more likely to happen, I think, in college because 
Um, there's not like, for example, you know, an annual IEP meeting. You don't have that. Um, actually, students not only do they need to take a lead, they often need to um, actually renew their accommodations every semester. And it's not, that. But it's not like a whole full IEP meeting where there's, you know, 10 people in the room and, you know, everything that, um, you know, typically happens, general ed teacher, you know, all sorts of things. So um, often it's going to the disability services or accessibility services and saying, yes, I want to continue these. And so it becomes um, very much on the student and then also is very much an executive functioning issue for students who have challenges with time management, organization, because if they don't go back and say, hey, I want to use these accommodations again and fill out whatever paperwork, they're going to start the second semester and they are not going to have their accommodations in place. Um, so that's, you know, something that somebody needs to be counseled on and, you know, potentially, um, you know, help support them to put reminders. One other thing that's, that's sort of along those lines that is like very surprising to people is, so one accommodation, right, very common is um, if there's a lot of distractions in high school, you can go take an exam in a quiet room, right? Right. So, um, Obviously, every school is different, but most um, students I've, I've spoken to, you know, they show up in their regular class, so there's attendance, and then whoever is taking the exam quite goes together and leaves um, and goes to a separate room. So historically in college, it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, there might be another building that you go to for the exam, and so you have to, on your own, go there. But um, what's more, um, really a lot more independence is in some schools, you have to contact the disability services or accessibility services a week or two weeks in advance of your exam to say that you want to go ahead and use that accommodation um, so that they can have it set up for you to be somewhere. And so um, if you forget to do that, you literally cannot just show up and say, this is just too noisy for me. I'm very anxious. I can't you know, I need to go somewhere else. It's sorry because you did not go ahead and request the accommodation a week ago. Um, so again, a lot more planning that's that's needed in order to. Right, because colleges don't have, like under IDEA, schools are required, they have the child find law of to yeah. find the children that need the accommodations and, and be there and put it out there. But colleges have no obligations whatsoever. Right. Um, other than ADA, but they also don't have to go make sure you're using it and make sure you have it. It just needs to be available for use. Correct. Um, now, I will say, though, that there are some types of support you can get in college that you can't get in high school, right? Because some of the stuff that we've just been talking about, you know, to some people who are listening, watching, can maybe be very anxiety producing, right? Thinking about right. the type of supports um, that the student currently gets. But for example, you can get an accommodation with the proper documentation that's approved by the school, disclaimer, um, that is you can get priority registration for your courses, okay? And so as an example, you can't just say, I have ADHD, I need this. You actually have to show um, and explain what's the, again, I hate this, functional limitation right. of having that. So um, you could maybe say, you know what, I can't take three classes in a row because um, I don't have the focus for that. Or I 
um, take medication that makes me, you know, go to sleep at night and then I'm very groggy in the morning. So I can't take classes that start before 10 a.m. And, you know, particularly for freshmen, people here, yeah. the 8 a.m. class, yeah. one of my kids has an 8 a.m. class now and struggle for him to get there this morning. Okay. Literally right. But um, so you can go ahead and get that as an accommodation, which super helpful and um, sort of a secondary thing. Um, hopefully no one's listening from the, yes, they're listening for, from the ADA, I mean, office, okay, the, the accessibility office, but it's also a good way for like classes that are super popular that people want to get into. It's an added benefit, you know, they can sign up for some of those right. classes. You know, so um, there's also residential support um, depending on disabilities. The residential support mostly it's not that someone's coming to check in on you and are you, is your room organized. It's mostly um, through accommodations is you can get um, potentially a single room or a private bathroom um, or something like that. Now, that you need, yeah, but you but it makes sense, but the college is not responsible for paying the difference between a single and a double. Okay. So you have to do that. And yeah, I have a whole workshop on the hidden costs um, for students with disabilities to go to college because there's a lot of things that, you know, the supports are there um, at the school or privately, but you may need to pay for some of them. Um, right. So anyway, there's, there's also supports that, all students can get, um, not specific uh, to someone with disabilities. Like for example, you know, the vast, vast majority of colleges offer free tutoring. Now the tutoring um, is done typically by peers. You know, there's someone, upperclassman who took the class, you know, did great in the class, really likes the subject matter. And then, so they're tutoring, you know, someone who's an under, what well, doesn't have to be an underclassman because you can get the tutoring, you know, throughout. Um, so potentially really helpful. Um, however, with that said, depend, they, they're not taught about learning differences. And so if you're someone who's dyslexic, having a peer tutor may not be that helpful for you because right, the way they're going to teach it is not um, the way that you learn best. And so you still may end up needing a private tutor. Um, but some schools do have, you know, a limited number of tutors that are learning specialist professionals and you, you need to ask, um, typically, um, I either counsel people or on their behalf, I may need to reach out to seven different departments. Um, again, very different than high school. You know, it's not, you go to this one place, um, it's right. not centralized and, you know, the starting place is disability services but they often just deal with the accommodations um, and they can guide you to other campus resources, but it's not where they take place. Got it. And I want to focus on something um, you keep saying, different colleges, you know, the disclaimer, like not all colleges and so forth. Yeah. Do you help families find the best fit of the colleges that will provide the accommodations that the student might need? Oh, that's a big part of what I do. Okay. So um, with that said, the actual formal accommodations, um, if someone qualifies, you know, they're pretty much the same in each school. Okay. Um, however, um, I have this, this chart that I show where there's like about 4,000 colleges in the country. Okay. And so there's 
a college for you, most likely, um, right. right? And um, if we picture like a sort of a line, like a bar graph, um, on the left side are colleges that only give you what's required by the ADA, okay? And most people, or I would say all the people that I support, um, that is not going to be a good fit college for them. Not because just what they don't, what they'll get, which they'll get what they're required to by the law, but, you know, I think it gives off that the school is very likely um, not the culture that they want, right? The school right. does not have, it's not inclusive, it's not empowering to people with, with disabilities, you know? And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are um, a few schools in the country that are specifically only for students who are neurodiverse. Um, and then, you know, there's a gradual increase from ADA only to, you know, separate schools for colleges, but for people neurodiverse. And um, what I help people do is figure out what is it that they need and willing to use, okay? Like again, if, you're not willing, if the student's not willing to use it, I'll tell you, do not go get the neuropsych done because, um, right. right? Like you've paid a lot of money and it's good to know, but is the student is the student gonna use it or your child gonna use it? So, um, and then I'll let them know and I do outreach to these different departments to say, okay, many students that I particularly support have social challenges. So I will help individuals develop a social plan and you know, I'll figure out the extent of, um, depends how much people want, but typically it's pretty deep right. of where are the best social opportunities at these schools for me? You know, for a lot of people, it might be a club um, or an activity, but just because it says like there's like, say you're really into, um, I don't know, cooking. I, I really like to cook. Okay. For another show, I tried out for Master Chef one time. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, uh, My father owned a chain of cooking stores. So I grew up uh, in the cooking. Oh, wow. all right. All right. Off camera conversation. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but anyway, like it may look fabulous that there's this cooking club that you're really interested in. But how many people are involved? Okay. You know, like right now, particularly for students, um, past few years and students, you know, applying this year and probably next year, these clubs were really affected by COVID. And, you know, in some cases they had to stop completely because certain clubs you can't do virtually. And with student leadership, you know, it could have been a really popular club, the cooking club, but now it's just rebuilding. And so um, I help students, um, you know, again, with their lead of what they see themselves doing, understand um, whether the social life is on campus where off campus it is um, to try to help them figure out, you know, if that's something that they're seeking, which most students are, how's the best way, you know, for them to um, sort of jump right in. Because the first semester, um, research has shown that like people's connection to their school the first semester and that transition really affects um, whether people stay at school or not, you know? Um, and unfortunately, the retention and the graduation rate of um, students with disabilities is a lot lower than individuals, um, you know, that, that do not have disabilities. And a lot of it's because, you know, people don't know, which is why it's great to be able to talk here today, because they just 
go somewhere without you know fully understanding what's available or not, or the schools don't have the supports, or they're not implementing them um, the way they should, or there's not enough supports. So um, really, the transition period um, is really very important. Right. No, yeah, it's so true, the social aspect. And also, like I know recently I've been seeing a lot more colleges have for the neurodiverse children. They have special yeah. programming and so forth. Like they're starting to be more accepting. Right. So um, not everyone who is neurodiverse needs a neurodiverse program. Okay. Right. So, um, you know, that's part of um, an assessment that I do is, right, so maybe you have an autism diagnosis, but that could mean that you go somewhere and, you know, potentially have no accommodations, but you want some help around social skills, right, and social planning. That's it. It's not part of accommodations. Um, to, you know, it would be beneficial to go to a school that offers, um, say, an autism support program. There's about 80 some odd schools in the country uh, that have autism support programs. And what they are, because a lot of people don't understand this, um, I think it's important if I could just to, to share, because some people think they do way more than they do. And other people that um, are concerned about stigma um, cut them off without really knowing what they do. So students who are um, in autism support programs, um, they're typically four-year universities. And you're a regular matriculated student. And it's extra support um, anywhere typically from two to five hours a week. Okay? Wow. And um, does that well mean you think that's a lot or not a no just that they're that they're doing that that they're giving that much support well well a couple of things one for most of them you pay okay Got um, it. some you don't but um, there's one school in California I know that you know a parent um, was really grateful and the student obviously too graduated so they made a large donation so in that school you don't pay because it's underwritten oh, wow. yeah it's super nice and, and really helpful um, but typically, so if someone has five hour program has five hours of support, you're probably going to have like one hour of one on one coaching, um, which for some people or many people is not enough. So that may need to be supplemented. Right. So I would look and say, based on your particular situation, Francis, is that enough or you can supplement with a private coach? There's a variety of things you can do. Then, you know, there's um, let's say, again, we're talking five hours. Two hours, that is a um, some sort of a skill-based uh, workshop. Uh, maybe it's about time management. Um, and then, you know, some programs, not all, but um, some programs offer some social opportunities. And they organize, you know, going out to the movies or going to a restaurant. And some people really like taking advantage of that. Um, you know, people who are introverts, um, people who like that it's just, you just show up, you pay the $15 to go to the movies, you don't have to organize any of it. And there's some other people that, you know, they may want some of the coaching support from the autism support program, but they don't want that for their social outreach and social right. life. So, um, and then some of them have um, study halls where not mandatory, but people are encouraged to go. Um, there's not a tutor there, but there may be somebody to help people sort of get started with um, executive functioning around doing the, the schoolwork. So those programs are growing. Um, they're definitely growing around the country. And um, 
hopefully, I think, you know, right now, um, colleges, my understanding is often see it as it costs them money to have to deliver these extra um, um, services. Um, However, as more data is available, you know, um, it's really encouraging that in programs, um, typically the students that are participating in those programs have higher graduation rates than students that are not, you know, higher retention rates. Um, They also, just from a monetary standpoint, of course, it's it's different, but um, more likely to potentially stay on campus and give the university actually more revenue. Um, Someone I know who who does some work um, with me, um, just uh, also just on his own, you know, helping universities set up uh, some programs, you know, actually talks to them that it's it's not only good for society and it's good for students, but it's actually um, a good business decision as well. So hopefully right. more, more colleges will see that. Yeah. Like my dad said, cost benefit analysis, right. You know, spend a couple hundred dollars here and it could increase your revenue by a thousands, you know, right. and trying to figure right. out what, what it works. Um, and it's interesting. You say that some schools have the program, but kids don't, access it um access it i like to say but even if you don't want to access it it's good to go to that school anyway because you know the school's more open to having neurodiverse children that's a really good point okay and i think that's like not a black and white issue but um figuring out as part of the process when you're going to college is how um inclusive does the community you know seem to be. Um, Obviously, they are making a commitment as a school that they are having a program. You know, it may vary by professor because a lot of stuff ultimately is what the professor wants to do of, you know, unfortunately, um, how they respond to individuals uh, that are their students. Um, But I do agree with you. You know, another thing that I really like for students um, that I support is uh, looking at something that, again, not part of an IEP, right, but a way for support right. in college um, is a first-year experience. Um, so, you know, it's kind of the way it sounds, um, meaning that, you know, every school has some sort of an orientation. And those orientations, you know, could be two days, that could be four days. Um, but some schools uh, turn that orientation into um, a much bigger experience, hence first year experience. So um, really helping people transition uh, to college. A lot is focused on the academics, but some is social, residential. So maybe you're in an orientation with a cohort of people from your dorm and there's a peer leader and that peer leader in a school may stay with you for, for the entire first semester and have like meetings every week, you know, in your dorm. How's everyone doing? Things are going. Some, you know, team building activities. Um, so schools like that often um, are very helpful for people um, who need some extra support. Um, some schools, you know, I always check this as well. Um, offer pre-orientations, early orientations. Some actually do offer them for individuals who are registered with um, disability services. And some might be, you know, your interest in community service, outdoor adventure, your first gen student. And that's a really good way for people to, you know, get connected to the school, meet a small group of people before they start. 
you know what, as I said that, and I'm looking at you about the child fine, it just um, made me think that we, what we haven't said is that the student needs to be the one to go register with disability services or accessibility services. Um, the school is not gonna find you, okay? Right. So when schools tell you stats, um, actually what I often do is, you know, I'll call up a school and I'll ask them, how many students are registered with a specific disability to get a sense of perhaps um, does the school have a lot of experience with students that right. um, more than, you know, black and white, this is the accommodation, but more of the gray areas, you know? And um, a lot of times people are not aware of that, students and families, that they have to go register. And then to your point earlier, by the time they understand it, well, then they've already lost time. You know, it will take time to then get it going, um, share the information with your professors, and you could have lost a whole semester. Um, right. Or you made the semester super difficult you know, because you didn't know about some of the ways you can get support. Right. So that brings me to, I just realized the time and wow, it was so easy talking to you. Like it was just like, <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, I think it's such valuable information for parents, you know, that we know that, that there's stuff out there to help and there's people out there to help us find the supports we need. So how do people get in touch with you? What do they do? Do you do consultations? Like how does the process work? Sure. Um, so I actually offer free consultation. So that's typically like 30 minutes. Um, and typically, um, you know, I actually start out by saying, what is it that you want to accomplish and learn from this? And I learn more information. Um, and I will never, like in a consultation, recommend a school to someone because that's not fair in terms of I don't know the student enough. It's not fair, you know, to obviously my own work. Um, and then I'll see if I think um, that I'm a good fit or not. And then, um, you know, people, again, can um, work with me, choose to work with me for a segment such as please help us by doing a college readiness assessment or everything through you know the search the applications the accommodations the transition to college and so um you can contact me um best way is like you can sign up for a um free consultation at my website which is actually um ed as an education redefined edredefined.com um and i can give a phone number but it's probably better right just to no just yeah, to the we'll have the links below um, to everything. But this was so awesome. Thank you so much because I even learned a lot. Like I knew you what you did, but getting into those details of how supportive you can be is so important. I think. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate it, and you know, I hope I um, uh, provided advice that's helpful to people and um, to let them know that there is you know a lot of solutions that are out there. Um, and you might need to be educated about it because, as you said, it doesn't just you're not naturally hearing about it. Right. Not that much. You're not in the detail, the level of detail that right. you need to know. Yeah, exactly. All trying to figure it out. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to Stress Free IEP. Hopefully I will see you again. You've been listening to Stress Free IEP with your host, Francis Schefter. Remember, you do not need to do it all alone. You can reach Francis through SchefterLaw.com, where prior episodes are also posted. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and sharing the show with others through YouTube, LinkedIn, 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. 